This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Welcome to this month's Global Market Perspective, the podcast from Schroeder is designed to help professional investors in South Africa navigate global markets. My name is Gavin Ralston, head of the strategic client group at Schroeder's in London, and I'm talking today to David Rees, Schroeder's senior emerging markets economist. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Gavin. It's great to be here. David and I are both uh, shortly going to be traveling to South Africa for Schroeder's two flagship conferences at the beginning of March. So we hope to have the chance of catching up with some of you, at least in person. But for today, I want to ask David three questions about global trends, and in particular, the Chinese economy and its impact on the rest of the world. We'll then finish up with a fourth question on David's views from a distance of 6,000 miles on the South African economy. So my, my three questions are, David, number one, just how sharp do you see the recovery in the Chinese economy being now that the COVID wave is passing or has passed, to judge from Anecdotal evidence, uh, there's a pretty strong revival in animal spirits in the Chinese economy. The second question is, looking further afield, where do you see a recovery on this scale having the biggest impact on the global economy? And then the third question, a bit more medium term, is there's been much talk of global companies shifting their production base away from China. Is this actually happening and which countries are benefiting? So, David, over to you for the first question. How strong do you think the recovery in China is going to be? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I mean, it's a really perfect time because we're currently just working on our first quarter forecast update, which will be published at the end of the month. Um, so I'm not going to do a spoiler and give away all the numbers yet because we haven't quite finished them. But it's quite clear, as you said, that um, first of all, I think zero COVID policy was abandoned far more quickly than anybody thought possible towards the end of last year. And also actually the exit wave, the so-called exit wave of infections, you know, when restricted to release infections go up as people sort of percolate and the virus moves around, it actually seems like the exit wave happened far more quickly than anybody thought possible, certainly in, in major cities, uh, but perhaps countrywide, because there were some sound bites from government officials a while back suggesting that already 80% of the people had been infected. So pretty clear that COVID has gone away, COVID measures have gone away more quickly uh, than anybody could have anticipated. We had, at least in the Q4 forecast, considered a scenario which we called the China rapid reopening, where COVID just essentially went away and the economy um, sort of got back to normal. um, And you've got to release a sort of pent-up demand, certainly for consumption of services, which is what's really been constrained during the period of zero COVID policy. And in that scenario, we had growth of 7% for this year. Now, I suspect that we're not going to have a number quite so strong as that, closer to six than seven. But nonetheless, we, we, you know, we do anticipate a strong recovery this year as you get a release of pent-up demand, uh, as I said, in the services sector. I don't think we're going to enter a sort of multi-year boom like we've perhaps seen in developed markets post-COVID. Um, a big part of the reason for that is that um, fiscal support in China has been much more on the supply side. We haven't seen big transfers from the from the state to households like we saw, for example, in the US, and therefore savings rate went up 
to extremely high levels and could then be drawn to fun, fun consumption. We haven't seen that in China. So the kind of base case is that we get two or three quarters of above trend growth, which gets us to six plus percent for the full year. But then growth starts to fizzle out as we go into 2024. We'll go back to much more normal rates of growth of somewhere in the range of four to five percent. So I guess I'm kind of thinking at the moment of it being a kind of sugar high of strong growth this year, but then going back to normal in 2024. So let's move on to question two, which is the broader global implications, because we've seen occasions in the past, I'm thinking particularly of the recovery from the global financial crisis, where Chinese demand has had a profound impact on demand in the rest of the world. How does that play out this time? Yeah, so I think it's going to be a little bit different this time around um, compared to back then. Um, the first point to make, I suppose, is that faster growth in China mechanistically lifts global growth because China accounts for about a fifth of it. So, you know, rule of thumb for every 1% increase in Chinese growth, you add 0.2 percentage points to global growth straight off the bat. Um, but of course, China isn't a big source of final demand. We know that because it runs persistently large external surpluses. So it isn't in aggregate a big source of final demand. And the drivers of growth this time are going to be somewhat different to, to they had, have been in those past episodes that you mentioned. You know, this time, growth is going to be skewed much more towards strong services consumption and much less to housing. Um, you know, the, the last two major recoveries that boosted the world, rest of the world came because China stimulated housing and that drew in a lot of commodities and, and off we went to the races. And it's going to be a little bit different this time, I suspect, because, of course, over the last couple of years, the government has really clamped down on housing and housing speculation in China, uh, kind of rooting out excessive uh, purchases of investment properties. And so we'll get some shallow recovery in housing this year, but from a low base and certainly not on the scale of what we saw in the past. So with that in mind, the spillovers are going to be different. I think one obvious area where you're going to see the impact of a reopening of China will be through outbound tourism. So those markets that rely on Chinese tourism, which have really struggled badly in recent years, will will see some benefit. Places like Thailand, you know, outside of China and in greater China, places like Macau, we've already seen the kind of travel and flight numbers to, to Macau rise extremely sharply over the holiday period. So that's one way that you'll see a spillover. Um, you, we are likely to see some increase in imports um, through both goods and, and commodities, which will give some benefit to, for example, Europe on the goods side. But I don't think that would be particularly strong because, again, this is a, a recovery skewed towards services. And, and on the commodities side, a little bit different again to the past, because whereas housing booms have drawn in kind of industrial metals, this time, the, the greater mobility, the fact that you're going to see people sort of traveling around much more suggests that actually it's going to be more demand for energy than metals this time. So, you know, the, the story is a little bit different. Um, and obviously, that could be a benefit to energy producers in the Gulf, for example, but perhaps less of a benefit to metal, metals producers uh, in Latin America or, or South Africa and and what have you. So, yeah, the spillovers will be a little bit different. And what about inflation? Because, you know, here we have an additional source of global demand coming at a time when 
the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England are all trying to suppress inflation. Does this make the job of central bankers away from China even more difficult? Possibly. So in the new forecast, we will have a scenario which just encapsulate higher commodity prices because at the moment, obviously, spot prices, certainly for energy, are quite low and the forward curve is just drifting down over time. But as I said, if if we think that energy consumption in China is going to return to trend at a time when energy markets have been obviously disrupted a lot by what's happened in Ukraine and, and sanctions on Russia, I think that's possibly where you could see some spillover um, if energy prices ultimately rise on on a, what what I think will be a stronger than is generally expected recovery in China this year. So obviously, higher energy prices pass through um, into higher energy inflation, certainly motor fuel, gas, etc., which has been a, a big issue lately. And when I did some rough sums, if you assume that oil were to rise to, say, $100 by the middle of this year and stay there, then you might see a bit of inflationary uh, impact coming through late this year, so around the turn of this year and into next year. Nowhere near on the scale of what we've seen over the past year, 18 months, but nonetheless, you know, higher than it would be in the base uh, baseline assumption. And of course, food prices and food inflation tends to historically be quite well correlated with energy. So if you were to get an increase in energy prices, quite possibly you could see some spillover to food, which would come in with a with a longer lag. The lag on food changes in food commodity prices to inflation sensibly in the region of six months, give or take. So it could be the case that you see some inflationary impact from higher energy prices in early 2024 and then some from food later in 2024. And if that were the case, you know, that would just leave less room for central banks to pivot, essentially. So we thought for a while that central banks in in developed markets would be starting to cut interest rates into 2024. If we did see commodity prices pick up and drive inflation, then there would be less room to do that. So the third question, moving a bit further out into the future, many global companies have been talking about shifting their production base away from China to manage risks in their supply chain. Do you see this actually happening? And where are companies moving production to? Yeah, so it's it's obviously a big, important, long-term question for, for emerging markets. And actually, I wrote a paper on this a couple of years ago, if people are interested, thinking about where companies might go and it really depends on on the reason for for leaving, I suppose. If you want to move away from China for um, geopolitical reasons and political pressure to secure your supply chains, then perhaps your first port of call is likely to be India, but perhaps also going back to, say, the US or going to Mexico. If you just want to move out to China because wages are rising, um, you concern the supply chains got interrupted, then you might go to Vietnam. I think in terms of tracking this through hard and fast data, it's actually quite difficult and it's probably a little bit early. We see a lot of, um, we've we've seen mentions, for example, in earnings calls with companies uh, of reshoring or friendshoring or whatever you want to call it, have been rising. They've been steadily rising in in recent quarters. So there's there's clearly a desire to move. but at the moment, we're really relying on anecdotal evidence because it's just so early. And so, and, and, but there is plenty of that, I think, that suggests that this trend is underway. Um, quite a few months ago now, we saw a 
lot of announcements about um, following, you know, sweetness from the US government about uh, semiconductors companies setting up shop in America um, and also looking to diversify their supply chains. And of course, the US has added even more sort of sanctions and tariffs into the sector in recent months. Um, that very much plays to the kind of regionalization theme that, that came out of the work that I did uh, previously. Um, and I think in those key sectors, that's probably going to run a bit further. But we are also starting to see a bit of diversification um, by some major companies such as Apple, um, who have started to produce components and, 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 and some products in India. Um, and of course, India, it, it's an obvious candidate I suspect for for companies that want to leave China or are considering leaving China because it has that those basic raw ingredients that China had um, all those years ago when companies started to move there of a very large population of relatively cheap labour um, and now because India's always had that but now the politics are kind of falling into line as well because um, India's economy isn't growing as quickly as it used to. And I guess Modi is kind of waking up to the fact that there's a great opportunity here. So, as I said, in, in the hard data, it's hard, it's very difficult to track this happening in real time. We're looking for indicators such as construction permits for factories, um, increasing shares of employment in manufacturing. Um, difficult to see it at the moment, but clearly this trend is, is underway. And in the just to give the plug for the regime work, uh, regime change work that we've done, which is now started to be published. This is a long-term trend that we expect to be to be playing out for some time. I said we would finish up with an external perspective in South Africa. So, David, um, tell us how you are viewing the prospects for the South African economy and for inflation and interest rates. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So. I mean, I think the story in South Africa is actually quite similar to what we're seeing in quite a few other emerging markets in that the central bank has now finally caught up to inflation um, in terms of rate hikes. So we recently had the, the Saab lift rates by 25 basis points to seven and a quarter percent to, you know, match headline inflation. Um, and it actually looks like headline inflation has rolled over and will now start to come down quite sharply. So in some respects, that's going to be a bit of a relief for the economy. Probably the central bank won't raise interest rates much further, um, and probably inflation will start to come down quite sharply. Certainly, though, energy-related inflation, fuel inflation has started to come down in recent months, and it looks to me like that will continue to fall pretty sharply in the next six, nine months. And also, it shouldn't be long until food inflation starts to come down either. You know, our leading indicators have suggested that food inflation would reach a peak about now uh, before finally starting to um, drop away. You know, it, it could well be down to back down to 5% or so um, in a year's time from double digit rates at the moment. So that would relieve some of the pressure on real incomes. Um, and all things equal would be positive for the growth outlook. But of course, it's not that simple. And the issue that South Africa's got, and indeed uh, quite a few other emerging markets that I said, is that you know, while inflation has peaked and will start to come down, it's still left its mark from much tighter monetary policy. And historically, um, when we sort of do a, a simple overlay 
of um, changes in interest rates in South Africa against GDP growth. Historically, those interest rate hikes feed through with a lag of around nine months, six to six to nine months. Uh, and so even if we've just had the final hike, uh, we won't sort of, or if you take that rule of thumb, the, its impact wouldn't really be coming through until the end of this year sort of, um, on, on the economy. So it seems as though growth will will slow from here. And of course, it's already been quite sluggish. Uh, we've, we've seen growth coming in fits and starts in South Africa, punctuated by contractions either due to waves of COVID or more recently uh, due to problems in the energy sector. And so output's only just really going back to trend and it's quite a, a weak uh, trend rate of increase uh, and probably going to start to slow. So yes, inflation seems like it's probably going to be coming down beyond the peak, but uh, the growth outlook still reasonably poor for this year, I think. Now, I guess for investments, uh, from an investor's point of view, that suggests that the bond market in South Africa should be uh, pretty attractive and there are some good yields there and certainly the rand doesn't look expensive. Um, and so there should be opportunities, uh, certainly in fixed income. But I suppose the one thing which is a concern moving ahead into next year is the political calendar. We're due to have a general election um, next year, and um, that's probably going to kick up quite a bit of noise and potentially quite a bit of volatility in the market. So um, difficult year ahead, I think, is, is the perspective from afar. Thank you very much, David. Um, thanks for sharing your views on the emerging economies more generally and also your perspective on South Africa. Thanks for inviting me, Gavin. See you soon. I'm sure you'll be able to share more colour on these issues when we're in the country. But for the moment, thank you all for listening. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorised financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment. The forecasts included are not guaranteed. They are provided only as at the date of issue and should not be relied upon. Our forecasts are based on our own assumptions, which may change. We accept no responsibility for any errors of fact or opinion and assume no obligation to provide you with any changes to our assumptions or forecasts. Forecasts and assumptions may be affected by external, economic or other factors.